Hey, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? God, it's early. Mm. Did you have a busy morning? It's not even 10.30 yet. Mm. Mm. I'm sorry. Ugh. We're starting uh, earlier Jeez. than usual, which by which I mean we didn't delay it as much as usual. Yeah, we're oh well. I I feel like there's a little bit of mission creep, and we're just getting earlier and earlier. And we're going to be recording this podcast at seven thirty in the morning. Hmm. I I don't want to hurt the uh, evergreen, long live nature of our program because I think it'll be helping people potentially for millennia. Yeah. But um, first of all, we always record <laughs> at ten a.m. Mm. on Wednesdays, unless mm. you're traveling with uh, the retinue. But uh, I think we need to officially move to 1035. Hmm. Would that help? 1035? Yeah, are you on the West Coast right now? I'm on the West Coast. So it feels like 7. 1035 on the West Coast feels like 7. It really does. I was just reading that Hunter S. Thompson used to wake up at 3 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and then he did just so much cocaine. He was, uh, to use your phrase that I picked up here, I think he was gacked out on cocaine for a lot of the day. Yeah, I, you know, I have considered, I've considered a lot of different speedy remedies to my, to my uh, problem of not wanting to wake up. But all of the, they all contribute to my problem of not wanting to go to sleep. Halcyon. He would have a Halcyon at 8 a.m. Hmm. I wish I could find a halcyon. This is a term, I know you're not a technologist, but I think this is a term you're familiar with, time shifting. Yeah, I Even given your 27-hour natural day. Yeah. You know know how there's some places, like really squirrely places that don't observe the time change? Oh, right, yeah, like little counties in Arizona or something that don't, don't make the switch. Yeah, it just seems to me that given the decisions that you've made in your life, your career, and your natural clock... I don't see there. There's no reason that you couldn't move to a 27 hour day. Yeah, am I wrong? Right, I mean, you got the kid stuff though. That's tough. Yeah, and I got to go to the bank and stuff. The, I, the 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 thing that confuses me is is not the is not the the little time pockets in the world, but there are. You know, I have a pretty good natural compass. I, I can always tell you where the where the you know what the cardinal directions are. Absolutely, you're like a you're like a uh, a bird of prey. You've got like a magnet in your nose or something. Yeah, right. But there are a couple of places in the world where that uh, inner inner compass is completely turned around by something by something in the ground. Hmm. The city of Budapest is like this. It does not matter to me how I arrive in Budapest. I I feel like it is um like the city is rotated uh, on the on the space time but not like even like nine, 90 degrees it might be rotated like 17 degrees like just enough to really screw you up uh, it's like 70 degrees Whoa. it's ro- it's rotated 70 degrees so so and the thing is I have walked to Budapest mm mm-hmm. mhm so you're moving mostly east at that point i was and so i knew you knew when you're, when you're going was. in you knew you were still going east for a while i did i knew and i walked and i had been there before and experienced this problem of like wait a minute whoa what no that's impossible that can't possibly be north i know it in my bones and then it's like no i'm afraid it is that is north and i so I'm, i walked into this city and i'm thinking this will solve this problem for me. This has been a problem for years. 
You got you, now, got a, you got a point of reference. Yeah, now I'm walking in. I I, I have real. I have Europe at my back. I am going to walk into this city, and I, I swear to you, I walked around a corner <laughs> in in a city street, and all of a sudden, it was like boom, and I was upside down and backwards. That must. I mean, that's like when Spider Man loses his spider spider it's sense. Exactly what it's like. Yeah. And I, I, I and the whole time. And the thing is, I love the city. The whole time I'm there, I I, I enjoy it very much. But there is something. There's some. There's. Uh, it, it's like a. Uh, you've seen those images of Einsteinian uh, fabric of space time where it could you, be you a non-Euclidean a, city. It's yeah. It's a, like a, there's a gravity sink there. Hmm. There's like a, there's like a, it's like a, a hole on a putt putt golf course and it is, but there's also a twist in it. It's like, it's like somebody, it's not like somebody put dog poop in a bag and twisted it because Budapest is not, you could not describe it as dog poop in a bag. That is how it feels. I feel you, like you kind of just did. I, I feel like that. It isn't the city. Right. I'm the poop in that analogy. <laughs> Budapest is the bag. Nobody blames the bag. <laughs> there are no bad dogs. But so, so knowing that that exists, knowing that that place is there, and knowing that that most people don't experience it because most people don't have a very accurate inner compass, mm-hmm. I, then it causes me to wonder about everything. Then it's like, well, if that if that can be true, then what else can be true? Yeah, so much about this doesn't add up, and I have to be honest. I, my file card for uh, Hungary is basically goulash and the Gabor sisters. Uh huh. Right, and that's pretty much the extent of it. But... Lake Balaton. Oh Put that well, I'll... <laughs> write that down <laughs> phonetically. Lake <laughs> Balaton. I have so many. I have already have so many questions for you. I I'll, I'll, I don't want to get in your way with this, but I, in, in the same sense as with with um, it's actually Peter Parker, but but in that same sense, you are a man with an active mind, and it seems to me that for the time you're enjoying this city, there must be some small part of you that's still wondering what the heck is, is going on and you think it might be the soil the pavement oh no it's something deep it's something much deeper than that it's mm. like a because i don't know what i i honestly don't know why my sense of the cardinal directions is so strong mm-hmm. but it has saved my ass a million times and it doesn't seem to be that it's not like i get interference from microwaves well, as far as you know as far as i know but <sighs> Did they, did they get the sun? Do they get the sun in Hungary? Because uh, my, yeah, my sense of uh, my sense of Kenning is is uh, the opposite of yours. I mean, I'm 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 lost on Market Street because it, have, it's a diagonal. <laughs> they have the sun there, but also you know one of the one of the uh, the good things about Budapest uh, is that one side is a hill and one side is flat. Like there's a river that runs down the middle of it. The river <laughs> runs due south. Through the town, and one side is a big hill, and one side is flat. So, so you've, you've got a geographical compass already in place. Yeah. So there is there is an awful lot. Uh, there there are a lot of physical features. It's not like it's just a rambling, uh, like uh, mess of a city. It's an incredibly ordered, gridded city it, with a lot okay. of features. They basically have a they basically have a sign on one side that says, "This is East. <laughs> this is East Town," <laughs> and yet I can't get my head around it. Because it doesn't, because it doesn't square with how I, because doesn't square with my emotional sense of what the directions are. But if you go to somewhere like London or Boston, I've never been to London. Oh, I've been to London for like like five hours. But but in yeah, Boston, you saw, you saw it all. 
I saw most of it. I uh, I found a place that had uh, had cig- I don't smoke, but they, I found a place that had cigars, and I went to a station, mm-hmm. and station. Uh, I used the loo. Did you see a Bobby? I saw Bobby. He had a he had a torch and a lift and a well, lorry. Yeah. <laughs> what he else? Had, uh, he had what a torch else? on his lorry. Listen, I've been to London a lot of times. You saw all the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that, that Olympic Stadium doesn't sound like really much to look at. But I mean, now obviously for me, you got you got two problems here. Well, I, I cannot set aside genetics. You can never. I think you're unwise to set aside genetics. But I was the the times the time when I had to acquaint myself with directions, especially when I started driving, was in Florida, where you know everywhere I've lived in Florida was oriented around a north south artery. You know what right. I mean? Like, like US 19, US 41, like there's always an almost, ex- I mean, the highways, right? They just go north and south. There's a well, couple Florida of- is just a, it's just a north south dongle. Florida <laughs> is just a dongle. Let's be honest. That's a dongle? That's yeah, a dongle. Huh. Right. It's a turkey waddle. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't like to quit the Simpsons, but, huh? but Homer uh, d- at one point refers to Florida as America's wang. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think that's part of it for me is I'm always trying to orient myself to like the large body of water is over there right? to the West in my case. And, uh, so, I mean, so for me, seriously, somewhere like San Francisco where, you know, as you know, market street is, is actually almost a perfect diagonal. And, and then the streets that go around it are totally confusing. Some of the names change at market street and there's intersections where there's like five roads coming together. And I find that, but you have no problem with that. I mean, we get in, the times you've been here, which I always enjoy, we get in your van and you have 100% confidence that you will get where you're going. You take, Mm. you take a step and you always know what the next step is. Well, and the thing about San Francisco is, I mean, that city was laid out by miners, miners and trappers. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think I think what they did is they tied they tied a length of string to the belt loop of like fifty drunk guys and just <laughs> sent them all out from the from. Let's call this one Kearney. <laughs> Go. <laughs> yeah. We'll call you Market. <laughs> but uh, but but in something in a city like San Francisco, I kind of I don't know what it is. I kind of just look up at the sky and know where I am. Well, this is why I bring up the sun. It was when I discovered the sun that my sense of direction got so much better because I'm What I'm, age were you when you discovered the sun? Um, I think I discovered the sun at a point when I had to discover the sun. I never paid much attention to the sun. And then at some point I was informed that it generally speaking rises in the east and sets in the west. Mm. And uh the the only two things that I have going for me in life literally uh number one i almost never forget a face i i I don't know anybody's name i have yours written down here on a card but (laughs) but that and i have an extraordinary sense of what time it is usually (laughs) down to no more than five minutes and and, you know that's not just because the morning edition song came on it's like i i know what time it is and my wife will say what time is it and i will go six eight six eighteen Wow. And I'm almost always so. So let me tell you how that helps. Once I discovered the sun, I was able to know that because it is the morning, and the sun's over there, that's kind of a kind of east. And it just seems mm-hmm. to me that you would you would just see a, you see your shadow like like <laughs> like a great roiling groundhog, and and you would know where to. I, I don't want to belabor this, but I, well, this but this is, is the problem. This is the this is the problem with living on the earth. Mm-hmm. One of the problems living mm-hmm. on the earth. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, if you're in Malibu, California. Why? You are you are conscious of the fact that the Pacific Ocean 
is is to your west and America is to your east because you are on the Pacific Ocean, right? That's how we think of the world. I could see it from my house. But like Malibu. Three days a year. Malibu is in this weird little, uh, it's this weird little beard. It's a, it's like a little beard on California. California's beard. <laughs> it's where, where. I thought that the was ocean, West Hollywood. <laughs> the ocean is no longer to the west of Malibu. The ocean is to the south of Malibu. Malibu points south. It that's faces that's south. completely unacceptable. So when you're in Malibu and the sun comes up, you think, oh my God, the, the, the sun is rising in the north or whatever. I mean, you cannot, you cannot reckon with it because you, you, your mind is so used to thinking of the Pacific Ocean, always to the west, always to the west. Right. But really, when you stand in Malibu and look out at the ocean, you're looking south, you're looking toward the Galapagos. Hmm. Hmm. That's where they get the turtles, tortoises. That's where they, that's where the tortoises come from. So, so it's, so this, and this is that this is true of Portland, Oregon too. If you get accustomed to thinking that the river in Portland, Oregon runs, uh, east west, and then you realize it runs north south, it can really screw you up. Man, I, why would you think that? Because, because the first time you're in Portland, you got really baked. Yeah, totally, dude. And now I'm given to believe that um, Portland is it's very flat. No, Portland's another city like Budapest. There's hills on one side and flat on the other, and a river in the middle. Locally sourced meat to the north. To the north of Portland, I don't know. I know where those food trucks are. I like those food trucks. Yeah, Portland. I just spent oh, I just spent a week on the Oregon coast. What? At, yeah, <clears throat> I, I I went down to the Oregon coast. I rented a house. What? And I sat in the house. And I've, heard, I t- I've heard nothing about this. Well, this is the thing. I, I keep uh, I keep my I keep my travels. The thing about the thing about okay. a- announcing to the world that you're on the Oregon coast is people can come find you there. They can they can uh, they can explore your home. So even I mean there are certain kinds of information that you are comfortable releasing uh, retroactively, but your right. movements, your movements in, in a contemporary sense need to be something that's a need to know basis. That's right. That's okay. right. And particularly when I'm going somewhere for, um, to experience a kind of like lonely beach solitude. Hmm. I don't want that in, you know, I don't want somebody like they call that uh, J. Alfred Prufock time. <laughs> when, uh, Did you wear your trousers rolled? I did. <laughs> when, when, when I'm walking down the Did beach, you eat a peach, I didn't have a beach. <laughs> you know, you you encounter people who are who are out on the beach in the in the dawn light, and uh, sometimes they have two red uh, dogs. Sometimes they have a black dog. <laughs> and uh, and you want to meet those people on even footing, beach footing. Mm. Uh, you don't want to be out there, and somebody with two red dogs goes super train. Mm. And that if I told people I was out there, oh yeah. But but so so I go to the Oregon coast, and my expectation is it's the middle of January. It's going to be a constant, like, shitty, dark, cold, wind-swept, rainy week where I'm going to sit in this little shingled house, and I'm going to shiver and stoke the fire and have lots of deep thoughts. And steam. And I'm going to steam. And instead, I get down there, and it's the sunniest week on record, and it's just beautiful every day. Wow. And I mean, cold. It's January, but it's it's just beautiful. That sounds bracing. 
it was it was great and you know and so every day i go and i i start i, I say i'm going to take a quick walk on the beach and then i go and i walk for uh three and a half hours up and down the beach and um i i did not have as many deep thoughts but one of the one of the uh one of the takeaways was that the Oregon coast for me is one of these places that I believe everyone in the world should everyone in the world. It's not that everyone in the world should experience it, but that everyone in the world should have access to it. It's such a perfect place that I I almost can't believe that, that um, it isn't part of everyone's lands, everyone's mental landscape because you know, the, 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 the state of Oregon, the law there is that, there is no private beach. All beaches are public. So you can walk from the top of Oregon to the bottom. Wow. If you can, if you can ford the rivers. Uh, and, um, and the beach is just, the beaches are really shallow. So when the tide goes out, you can walk out onto the mudflats f- seemingly forever. I don't know. It's just a, it's just, it's a, it's a place that's always in my imagination and we used to go there as when I was a kid. So, so I just got back from there. So I'm a little dreamy. I'm a little like spaced out. I'm hmm. But and it, it doesn't, well, the thing is it doesn't like Portland somehow the, the back in the old days, Portland and the Oregon coast were kind of a symbiotic. It was like the people on the Oregon coast were largely from Portland and Portland was this little logging town and it just all felt like a, kind of a weird island but now portland is throbbing with this food truck energy and people with the you know with sink stoppers in their ears and and the oregon coast is still eternal it's it's just it, it doesn't feel like it's changed at all so the two things now now it feels like there's a disconnect between portland and the and the beach but you you, you stayed mostly close to the shingles yeah there's a little house that's that's basically in the sand dunes. That's, I mean, you, it's a slingshot from the water, and um, I camp out there. And you, uh, I mean, in as much as you can say, we can cut this out. But in as much as you can say, you were you were ready for a uh, not a sabbatical, I guess, a, a week ago to, uh-huh. to to just go away. And and you're thinking this is going to be a place to you get a change of scenery. Mm-hmm. You you put aside the worries of the day. And the and the deep thoughts can can flow like the shallow tide. That was your thinking going into it. Yeah, but I I know that your I know that you have a lot of feelings on these uh, topics about uh, like the deep thoughts and how they flow. And I'm I'm beginning to I'm beginning to question whether there is any retreat that causes the deep thoughts to flow, or whether the you know, I, I, Merlin, I keep looking for the secret key that is going to unlock the, um, it's going to unlock my work and it's going to make me want to make the, the kinds of things that I think I should be making. And this is a weird thing because I make things all the time, but I have, I have, a, I have a list of things I think I should be making. Right. And I can't, I couldn't be less interested most of the time in making those things. And so I keep thinking I'm going to find this key. It's going to unlock the box where the, these things that I think I should be making are, and they're going to pour out of me like they used to, like when I was young and I didn't think I should be making those things. I just did them. 
and I'm gonna re- I'm gonna find that again. And so I, I, every time I go on tour, every time I have a, a a an interesting moment or a fun night, I come back and I sit down in my chair and I go, I am God, I'm fired up. I'm gonna do this stuff that I really think I ought to do. And then, I just um, I just the the kind of life dra- uh, drains out of me. So I went out to the Oregon coast thinking I was going to, I was going to talk to God in the form of the rhythm of his waves. And, uh, you know, I love the waves. I stared out at them. Maybe I even talked to God a little bit, but it's, it's, it's not like I came back and, and, uh, poured it, poured it into anything. Actually, well, that's not true. I wrote a long article about how punk rock sucks, mm. but that's, nobody wants that. Uh, that would have come out anyway. Nobody's. It would have, and the thing is, nobody's interested in it. That's what about what about hard to open jars? Is that something you'll be addressing? Hmm. Hard to open jars. I don't find I why, don't, why why hard candy so costly now. I don't find. I don't find, <laughs> <laughs> I don't find uh, jars hard to open and uh, hard, hard. Why don't candy people buy pants? Why don't people buy trousers that fit? <laughs> when does when the, I say does the music rock have sucks, to be so loud? <laughs> when I say punk rock sucks, I don't mean punk rock music. I mean, I mean, punk rock. One oh, one. this heals a rift. Okay, thank you. Yeah. No, punk rock music, you know, my, my contention about punk rock music is it's not a thing. That, that good like punk, it, ne- it really never was a thing. Yeah, good, good punk rock music is just good rock music. That's true. And the I stuff I mean, you that, listen, if you listen to The Clash or The Ramones or like any good band... Yeah, uh, if you listen, if you listen to you know like X or Wire, you yeah. listen to those bands and you go, these are just or Talking Heads. You just listen. And it's like this is a fresh take, following a bloated era, a bloated era, a bloated era that I happen to really like. But right. that it was there was certainly, but they know, are on a continuum from the Kinks. Well, they're on a continuum from Eddie Cochran, right? So there is no punk rock. Okay, it's just rock. And the stuff that the, the the stuff that you could legitimately call punk rock, which is like self conscious art music, where it's like Yoko Ono screaming over some intentionally out of tune instrumentation, and Ugh. you know that's just that's that's neither punk nor rock; it's just garbage. So punk rock punk rock music is just rock music. Hmm. Punk rock as a philosophy is the thing. That I think is bullshit. Even in nineteen seventy six when the garbage was piling up on the streets and there was no jobs. Well, I, I saw a really good I saw a really good uh, documentary on Joy Division. Like I, I've seen the Alex Cox movie about, you know, Sid Vicious and stuff like that. And yeah, you know, it's a little, mm-hmm. you know, alternately hagiographic and nightmarish. But but I saw this really cool documentary on Joy Division. I thought it was Michael Warnerbottom, maybe maybe he did the fiction film. Anyhow, I, I really Michael Warnerbottom, yeah, Michael Warnerbottom from the Warnerbottom Brothers. Mm-hmm. But um, but but what I got from it showing this kind of archival footage of what it was like to live in Manchester in 1976. I mean, it was so blighted, and everybody was living in what do they call it council flats flats Tons like just flats. these awful it looked like something stalin would come up with in a, in a bad night and there was a time when i don't know why this one really struck in my stuck in my mind but uh i guess there was a strike as you do in england and the garbage piled up 
on the streets for I guess weeks. Yeah. And it was it was blighted. It was really blighted. And you know, you listen to I don't know how you feel about the Sex Pistols. I you know I don't think they're quite as good as people say they are. But I mean, no future, no future. I mean, I think the Sex Pistols feeling. are the best punk band. Mm, you think they're better than X? Yes. Okay. Um, but the thing is that 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 you don't think that, that was you don't think it was an anim an animus alongside things like oh my god Genesis and Queen this is the worst which I disagree with um you don't think that, oh, was, the, that was an animus the, the 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 blight of Northern England also produced Black Sabbath which is one yeah. of the great one of the great rock experiences no question the thing about punk rock philosophy the reason that I think it is bullshit and and I say that even acknowledging that punk rock as a like as a corner of youth culture was very important to people i have a lot of friends who claim that punk rock the culture saved their lives and it was the family that they didn't have and it was a it was a place where they were so, all well, their... maybe they felt like they fit in for once well yeah and and i i mean i mean but the thing is that you could People say that same thing about Scientology. You know, it's a place where your fashion questions, your music questions, your political questions, and your social questions are all answered in one place. Oh, it's doctrinal. And you're, yeah, it absolutely is. And you are 14 years old, and so you walk into this, you walk into this meeting hall, and you're like, "Oh my God, I finally I'm home." And I understand that that is that has a powerful emotional effect on people. And even though a lot of these people now are forty five and fifty years old, they cannot they cannot look at punk rock with a with a clear eye. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that punk rock, as a philosophy, as a as a social philosophy, is it is intrinsically negative. It is anti reactionary. And it is reactionary, exactly, and in a, and in a way, fascist. But but it does not have. It is not pro anything. It is anti everything. It lets you know what it is opposed to. It never really stipulates what it's for. It's like a fourteen-year-old boy. All it knows is what it hates. All it knows is what it hates, and that and, and that has and that has for certainly your and my generation, that mentality. We, because punk rock was also cool, because that was, because, you know, that was where uh, a lot of the, that was the, the genesis point of a lot of the stuff that we liked and particularly, and like, uh, uh, I mean, any, anytime you're, you're in a sort of a mind control posture, if you can attach it to good rock music, um, you got half the people right there where they don't even have to think about what it's about. That's why, that's why Christians are so interested in making rock music now. You know, it's a great way to get inside of people's heads and get them before they're really thinking critically. So, all through the 80s and 90s, we, as a generation, internalized this punk rock critical eye, which was, which all it could say was, that sucks, that sucks, that sucks, that sucks. And it never espoused uh, like uh, its own concept of beauty, and so hmm. I think personally, and, those, and the ones that did weren't really punk rock songs. 
Right. That's right. the funny I mean, thing when like when Wy- uh, when Wire sings Outdoor Minor, which is a gorgeous, basically almost a ballad, or or when you know, I mean, how different is you know something from London Calling from I won't say Bruce Springsteen because I don't want to start a thing, but from from like a, a soaring like proto um, power anthem almost. Well, and now <clears throat> Green Day. Is basically is, is basically making music like ELO. Oh, it's it, like it, it's like the buzzcocks it, with press releases. It's come all the way. <clears throat> it's come full circle. But but again, leaving the music aside and just talking about the uh, talking about punk rock as a, as a social phenomenon, a fashion movement, a way of criticizing culture, which you know, which it deeply, profoundly is. Punk rock draws a line on everything. Is it? punk or is it not in and you know and that's where that's where indie rock got the concept that selling out was the ugliest thing you could do you know that whole business of yeah like what would what would johnny rotten think of this decision exactly and death cab for cutie were asking themselves that question what would johnny rotten think i mean through through the through of three different filters i mean they weren't actually thinking about johnny right. rotten but but you know uh, sunny day real estate wouldn't do interviews right on their first record. Bell and, Bell and Sebastian wouldn't be photographed unless every single person, like nine people in the band, were all in the photo. Right. And Eddie Vedder drove across America in an uninsulated Ford van while his bandmates flew from show to show in their own private 747 or 747. <laughs> keeping it real. Because he was keeping it real via Mike Watt, via Johnny Rotten, via, right. you know. And so... We all have been carrying this around in us, everybody, our generation, and I think everybody from 30 to 50, this idea that every, every time we make something, we look at it and go, hmm, punk or not? Oh, God, not punk enough. Garbage can. I'm coming around. I'm coming around. Okay. Well, so, you know, so anyway, so ultimately I feel like, when I, and the reason I'm saying this now is that I look at, the, I look at the, the generation that is finally throwing this in the garbage, which is this, this newest generation. 20 to 25 year olds who are making stuff now and they you know i I think they look at their cultural patrimony and they see a bunch of like whiny millionaires (laughs) and they see the last the last vestiges of that kind of uh pitchforky like sell out this this is hack and the kids that are 22 are like you know it just seems like that's how old people think. Well, you end up you end up starting if you allow it to happen to yourself, and it's certainly happened to me. Is you end up starting whatever you call a career with a certain amount of cultural baggage right. about what the previous generation would think, which is not so different from going to Eden. Right. Exactly. A- absolutely. And the the kids now, I think, are just like fuck it. Right. And they 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 take the they take a little bit of the sneer but none of the self criticism and they just want to dance and they're just being kids again and they seem like a much more oh my god and praise be to god that they are making culture much more lightheartedly and, <laughs> right you know you look at lena denham or dunham or whoever that girl is that's making girls and mm-hmm. and they, this generation is they're just as smart as we ever were but they are having a they're having a little bit more fun because they aren't well doing doing something more profound and more likely to endure in some ways yeah because they're not because they aren't self-censoring 
based on a, like a, a fundamental principle that if you are not approaching the world with negativity, then you are part of the you're part of the the capitalist you know oligarchy. Right. You've got me. You got me thinking about this. And there's certain. Okay. So I mean, I personally never have thought the germs were all that great. They kind mm-hmm. of phoned it in. <laughs> Think about what's enduring about. You liked Agent Orange. Mm, I mean, that's too many know, harmonies. No, it's it's that. What is that? That's that's like the the, the ventures with spit. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but here's what's enduring. What's enduring about it? I mean, we, we take away. Sure. I mean, I think there's something to be taken away from the culture stuff. But think about this. Think about how much of of the enduring legacy that made bands like your previous bands, you know, ins- it might have inspired you. You think about it. You know, a lot of it. Some of it is cultural. I mean, you're never. You're very unlikely in context to ever get weirder than Screaming Jay Hawkins. Nobody's ever going to be that weird, just given like what he was alongside in those days. Absolutely. <clears throat> but think about this. Think about the, the, the really, and again, I am certainly guilty of the hagiography here for every one of these. But number one, I don't think people really understand what independent music meant in the mid to late seventies because the buzzcocks very few people have been as independent as the buzzcocks. They like practically pressed their own records. They made their own covers. Like they almost single-handedly invented independent music. What is that? Well, that ends up being a business decision because there was not, there was not a forum. There may have been a forum forum for promoting them, but there weren't that many people out there who were going to invest in them. And they really did literally do it themselves. Like say what you will about Ian McKay. But the thing is we remember, we remember discord for their, like we won't play a show that costs more than $7. But but again, what they did was a business decision. They created a sustainable business by being lean and by and by supporting artists that they really believed in, and, and we say, all we all live in the in the aftermath of that. Like they created that, and we and the, and that is why I don't. That's why there's a Barsook. That's why there's a Barsook. That's absolutely true. And then and finally, and again, this is going to be the most hagiographic. I'm ready to <clears throat> be wrong about this, but you know, I think this is in some ways extremely true. Which is the SST bands, including especially people like Black Flag, they worked really hard. And Although Blaze, not as hard as Rollins makes it sound. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, I mean, I've I only saw the Minutemen once, and I saw the band after that. Uh, a couple times, but I mean, I really believe that Mike Watt is is a pretty hardworking guy. But but the thing is, they got in a van and they drove, and because of the community that they could develop, they were able to blaze a trail that people are still driving their van down till this day. But again, what is that? It's business right. and it's work. All of the enduring things in all of this were people who actually decided to be dedicated to doing the work, which is not nearly the same thing as starting out going like I want you know I want safety pins in my jacket or whatever. Yeah, it's well, all work. And- but and, and and that's absolutely true and it is the it is the lack of uh, ability to acknowledge that it is a business decision that all of those groups that you just mentioned i mean all all of those uh, innovations uh really you could write a, a an article for fast company about each one of those they're groups. like they're like a startup that works they're a startup that works but the but it, like threaded through the philosophy of each one of those organizations was a rejection and denial that business was a was what they were doing. At, that least, business, at least not big business, right? 
They wanted, well, they, wanted, they wanted to have enough to put gas in the in the van. But that's the thing; they were not proud of it. And that, if you read that Rollins book, where he's <laughs> talking can about make it through, <laughs> where he's talking about being on tour, there's this cognitive disconnect because on one page he's like, "So we got to Chicago and we sold out the Metro, and there was a line around the block, man." Right, but I, right, but I right. was riding in the back of a box truck from shows to show, from shows to shows, and I was peeing in a mason jar. And and when you have sold out the Metro or played the Metro, you realize that even if you're only charging $5 a, a head, to sell out the Metro is to have money. You are earning money at this point. It is a, it is a, it's a big venue. And you're, and you're boosting your ego. Uh, well, you're boosting your ego, but, but more than that, you have arrived at a place where you do not need to go from show to show in the back of a box truck. So if you're doing it... You are doing it. You are doing it intentionally. You know. You are choosing. It's like oh, Eddie they've Vedder chosen to be part. They've chosen. They've done this impossible thing of choosing to be in the proletariat. Yeah, Rollins is either lying, which I, which partly I think is true, or he is self mythologizing in the moment. Right. right. He's waking up in the mor- in the morning, and there is a there is a tour manager, or there's somebody standing there with an envelope full of cash, and they are. They are pretending it's not there, and they are continuing to, to uh, you know, to pee in jars and live uh, and roll from show to show in a fifty-gallon drum because <laughs> because to get your own hotel room is bullshit, you know. And uh, I got picked up at the airport one time by Bob Weston and Big Black, uh, yeah, Big Black, and he picks me up at the airport in the Big Black van, and it is a Ford van that is. Just exactly like you imagine the Minutemen toured in. It is the van that the Big Black toured in. And it's a 75, you know, or 78 red Ford van with no paneling. So it's just the, you know, it's just the sheet metal. And there are no seats in the van. There's like, there's like a, a, a love seat that somebody drags. It's like in. sitting in Steve Albini's guitar. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like just meta- in, metallic and uncomfortable. It's like sitting in a chair that you, that somebody made out of Steve Albini's earwax. <laughs> and, you know, and, and the thing has 350,000 miles on it and it's got backstage passes from shows, you know, but, but not like self-consciously, but just like haphazardly stuck on the walls. And he's like, hey, man, sorry, I couldn't, you know, I had to get the truck running and here we go. But we're all and and it was great. It was super cool to be in this this van. But, you know, Bob Weston was first engineer on in utero. Right. Right. Bob Weston is um, a success. Do you think he got points on that? Well, he got paid for it. Right. Okay. And he he got a credit on on a Nirvana record. <laughs> he got you know, and 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 that and and if you look at Bob Weston's CV, and I, I'm not, I don't mean to throw him under the bus. He's a wonderful man, but he is you know part and parcel of of our entire culture uh, that that it, that descends from punk rock, which is that this. And the thing is, if there was a winking acknowledgement of like, yeah, I mean, isn't this band great? Like I. Uh, this is this is a piece of living history. It's like, it's like you might as well drive a Conestoga wagon. <laughs> like I could, I I suppose I could afford something a little more modern. Yeah, if 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 any of us 
for the last 25 years, we're able to, to look, to wink and say, yeah, I know I could be driving a better car, but I drive this because I know it's cool. It's a, it's a, it is part of history and it's, and I know that picking you up at the airport in this van is impressive to you. And it's like, it's like something an A&R guy would do. <laughs> yeah. Let's all sit here and like, and just like, just like give ourselves a little bit of, of crotch pleasure. Let's just gently stroke ourselves knowing that we're in big black van. You know, but, my, but, Mike watched shot in here once. <laughs> But in fact, but in fact, for the last 25 years, we, we have not, let's be honest, we, if, if, if you think that there has been that element of fun in our culture, you are misremembering it. Because right. Bob Weston picked me up in that van with the pretense that that was his car and that was what he could afford and that was how right. he kept it, you know, and, and, and so, and that's been true of everything we've done. As a, as a youth culture that's now moved into middle age, where it's just like, oh, yeah, sorry, man, I couldn't, you know, I would have been here earlier, but I had to. I was I, out giving free vegan food to poor people. Yeah, I was working at the needle exchange, and it's just like, wait a fucking minute. No, you weren't. And that, so when, the thing is, when I look at the kids now, I see they have taken all of that. They've, they've adopted the fashion. They've taken, they've taken the fun parts of that. And it's why it's why they they're a little bit incomprehensible to us because it's like wait wait a minute why are you having fun you don't get to have fun you're making well, rock it's, music it's not so different from me being 46 and choosing to wear a shirt with a comic book character on it I I have I have the means you're finally having fun well yeah I am but it's it's partly nostalgic it's partly something I feel like I miss but you know you said something about to, to being being middle aged and I think that can't be overlooked. Um, I mean, you know, when you're younger, you sure have more energy. You can put up with more. You were, are creating memories that you will someday be nostalgic about. But, you know, think about how many of those bands, again, you know, going back to a time when you, let's say you start, I, I can't think of a specific band of the Buzzcocks do come to mind. Joy Division comes to mind. Um, I mean, a lot of that was you didn't have, nobody came in with the suitcase full of money. But when you had the opportunity, I mean, Joy Division uh, became New Order and New Order became huge. And yeah. and the thing is, you might have gotten signed to Mute or you might have gotten signed to, I mean, you know, A&M was an independent label for a pretty long time. And, you know, and, and thank God they put out the police. You know what I mean? And then they became a major. All I'm, all I'm trying to say, though, is that when you do, for lack of a better word, grow up a little bit, um, you might think about something like, well, you know what? If I really care about what I'm making, A, I'm going to need the means to do that for a living and not have to work at Hagen dazs And then B, when you no longer have to work at Hagen dazs and, and that's all just kind of a, a, a put on, you start to realize the extent to which you are a white kid who could drive around in a band and, and draw a crowd. This is an old argument, but if you ask most African-American people who are living in poverty, they would love to have, have even that freedom to get in a van and drive around in a heartbeat, but they can't. they got stuff to do. They're working in a factory. Sorry, sorry to be all punk rock here, but that's really true. You, you know, A friend of mine always used to say you can't choose to join the proletariat because if you choose to do that, you still implicitly have the net of being a white man who can walk anywhere and be the norm. And, and, you know, but, but you are, you are making the arguments. I, th I feel like still from within this, the, the punk rock mentality, like we, the idea that we even need to explain 
that we are that it's okay to enjoy success is we we we've we've been doing it our whole lives so that we feel we feel like we we forget that it is a technology and I, and i hmm. feel like punk rock came punk rock came up not just in the blighted uh like like shitscape of manchester and to a lesser extent los angeles in the late 70s but also not to just always be hammering on this but in in the cold war <laughs> you know during a time when it seemed like it wasn't just that the rich people like they are now the rich people just seem like they're greedy they're stealing they are they're just sucking bone marrow and they're just lame they're they are they're ugly they're coarse but 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 we forget that 35 years ago 40 years ago those people also we perceived them i guess maybe mostly we perceived them as having their finger on the red button that was going to that was going to annihilate all right. of human life. They, they were part. They were part of. Uh, we perceived, and probably true, that they were part of a system that elected the people who were right. keeping us really close to the football getting opened. Right, and so that paranoia, I could un- I could see and understand why why initially punk rock had this we're anti everything right. mentality because to join that world at all. To even to go so far as to like eat a hamburger at McDonald's, you were contributing not just to a world where there were rich people who got to have swimming pools, but you were contributing to a bankrupt, uh, a morally bankrupt world that was teetering on the edge of mutually assured destruction. So there wasn't a way to participate hmm. where you weren't complicit. And so punk rock was anti everything. So, so you had you had to make something that was kind of ugly. You had to. Yeah. You were you, you, you. It was the only moral choice. But that has not been the case for twenty five years. years. Yeah. You know. And so. Uh, so that and and the reality is, looking back, punk rock's response to the Cold War, really, when you broke it down, when you really read the zines was just a garbled mix of like like revolutionary marxism and i mean it was it was nothing new it was just it was just the dregs of a of a you know of a city college education like sandinista really do you know what the sandinistas were up to it's not a great record and it's, and then they are and the sandinistas sucked you know and to put to put to to wave that flag <laughs> right. was just was was to was to exhibit how little you knew and how how mute and impotent your response to it really was. Like, punk rock did not smash the state. It did not end the Cold War. Punk rock did not save us from, from basically 12 years of imperial Bush family. <laughs> punk rock did not do shit except... You know, and and when it when it turned into grunge, when punk rock made that transition into grunge, it continued to not do shit. We did not even defeat Ticketmaster. Like all we did, all it did is what you're describing, which is it started an alternate model for financing music and culture. A D, the DIY right. concept is the only positive product aside from the fact that some great music got made 
but philosophically DIY is the only thing that came of it. <laughs> we and we thought we were going we thought we were going you know to whatever China, but what, what we really discovered was the maps weren't reliable in Hey West Indies. <laughs> <laughs> right, and here but, we are. I mean, un- unintended, unintended consequences that you start out with this this ethos, and you know I don't want to say it's fake ethos. I wasn't there, but I mean you start out with an ethos, and you're young. You're you know you I mean far off from it. You really weren't. I mean we were there. What when did we get when did we jo- when did we join that culture? Nineteen eighty. Yeah, I mean, I, I everything, and this is this is you know another old man point, but also everything. So many of the things that we get to enjoy, even starting when I was there, were filtered already. You know, two or three times through. You know, I, let's put it this way: I, I would not have discovered a lot of that music without you know, community radio, but also like independent record record stores. And then a lot of times, it was pretty easy to go buy a copy of Nevermind the Bullocks at you know uh, record bar. It, but independent record stores were a thing not because they were a response to the corporate record world. Independent record stores were just a business model. They were because like they, they, it was a specialty store. It was like a comic shop. Yeah. And the th- what, what, what we're discovering now, what I'm seeing now, is that DIY is finally divorced from the idea that it is against business. And DIY is just now a business model. And Hmm, Taking yeah. it away from this idea that DIY is against business, you don't have young bands who are like, we don't do interviews. We don't want your filthy lucre. It's just I, a business. I'll say everything I've got to say on Facebook. Yeah, yeah that's right. If you want, you know, <laughs> thanks you for the ad. And it's like, fuck, <laughs> fuck, wait a minute. It never was. DIY was never a, like, an alternative to business. It was just a form of business. Well, like if you put out a record, it's because you want people to hear it. You want them to essentially to, to buy it. Otherwise yeah. you would have pressed those records and, and given them away. But, but you know, here's the other thing is that I don't You can tell me if this is BS, but um, the punk rock is, if nothing else, extremely subconscious or excuse me, uh, extremely self-conscious. You are, as you, as we stipulated, you are actively reacting to something else, mostly in a negative way. But I mean, I, I'm whatever going on about people like, like Duchamp or whatever, but like, there's always been a self-consciousness in art. Um, but you can produce something of enduring value with that self-consciousness. If you're, if Picasso is reacting to Cezanne, well, he, he came up with some pretty good stuff and figured out how, how to make a living out of it. It right. just, you've got, you've got to create more than just a poorly written manifesto. Right. And, and the thing is, Picasso rejected the artists that had come before him, but and and poured a brilliant new. <laughs> he said, outlook. Fuck, "Yeah, but you know, look at this. How about yeah. this?" He didn't just go. Meh. But what he didn't do was say, "I no longer am represented by a dealer in Paris. My artwork should be free." You know, Picasso used the same dealers that his that his for and was proud to uses the same dealers that his that the guys that came before him did it was punk rock was the first real thing that said we reject the we reject commerce because commerce has produced the bomb and or so, or, or or the or the class system or it's responsible for hunger or like any ill you can find you can strap on to this quote unquote big system 
Absolutely. And if you if you if you collect eighties punk rock zines like I do and read the the screeds in there, there is no liberal cause that punk rock won't attach itself to. Um, and I don't, I don't mean liberal because punk rock ultimately really it's extremely conservative was a libertarian philosophy. Like eh, anarchy with the big a in a circle is just tea party. <laughs> it, it, it really is. If you, you, you're you're could, saying it's it's gun gun nuts in leather jackets. <laughs> basically, you know, it is it is leave me alone. Why should I have to do that? Right. Why should we do? But did, did, you're not the a, boss of me. <laughs> you're not the boss of me. It is a bratty teenage philosophy right. that is you know now of course promulgated mostly by these people with PT cruisers, uh, but uh, but at the time. <laughs> You know, it I seemed. Hate I, I swear to you, the people who were reading Ayn Rand in 1984 were all, I mean, either the drummer of Rush or that this this like this subset, this uh, the, the 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 kind of the place where ponytails and punk rock meet. Is, Thank you. Is is anarchy slash libertarianism? Right. So anyway, I, I I feel hopeful for the future, but I really feel like we need to look back as a as a people, and I'm talking about our generation in particular. Look back and say, wait a minute, this was bullshit the whole time. We did not need, or not maybe not the whole time, but we inherited a thing that we did not understand. We adopted we adopted this this mentality that for things to be good, they had to prove they weren't shit. And that, you know, that, that money and business were intrinsically, inherently immoral. And it, was, and it was garbage, and it handicapped us. But it also, but you know how you're talking about people who would think, or we were both saying about how, would, would Johnny Rotten approve of this? You also, as creative as you might have thought you were, you had a clear progenitor, progenitor that you wanted to please. Mm-hmm. And that self-consciousness might lead you, you know, to, to make this something with this certain drum beat. And you go, oh, you recognize that that's actually a drum beat from Noi or whatever. You know, that, that, that there's this, there's this, when you say like there's this like doctrinal conservative thing, I, I look at somebody, I don't know what your feeling is on Captain Beefheart. I really like Captain Beefheart. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the guy's too generous. And mm-hmm. he, I don't know, he's certainly probably self-conscious in his way. He was definitely insane. He wouldn't wear headphones in the studio. But to me, that's something really, really new. Like when, when that came out, I mean, the New York Dolls were like Rolling Stones in dresses. I should do this for a living. I'm pretty good at this. You should. You are good at it. But I mean, again, you, you go back to something like Screaming Jay Hawkins. I don't know why I'm thinking him in particular. But, but like the, the kind of people who would really produce Charlie Parker or, um, you know, some, somebody who went out there and really, I mean, Charlie Parker was playing and, and Dizzy Gillespie were playing in, you know, the contemporary like big bands at the time during the day and like reinventing what we thought about music certainly with progenitors but like their response was not to go screw you we're just going to play this just play this faster like they kind of rebooted the whole idea of jazz in a lot of ways they made they made something new that in its way we came to realize was beautiful it was at the time kev calloway called it chinese music no one worked ping pong but but like we came to realize that you know that was something substantially new and we need to we need to be able to separate 
all of the amazing artwork that got made under the rubric of punk rock from the from what is the the kind of virus i'm i'm on board i'm on board i'm i I get what you're saying yeah who's who's your favorite punk rock band the sex pistols really yeah because that's that really is that that has antecedents in um in like the kind of rock and roll that you really love. In some ways, the Sex Pistols are not really that different from ACDC in a lot of ways. The Sex Pistols and the Romantics, if you put blindfolds on like people from outer space, mm-hmm. if you if you blindfolded my pillows and played them the <laughs> Sex Pistols and the Romantics, right. peop, I think the pillows would say, I don't know, the guy from the Romantics has kind of got a pretty cool little lisp. Uh, the Sex Pistols guy's a little bit screamier, but they're they're both they're both amazing. I mean, let's say let's say my favorite cool punk band, because the, because most people can't get their heads around the fact that the Sex Pistols are even a, a, are even a punk band anymore. But uh, my favorite cool punk band is the Bad Brains, and the Bad Brains, in spite of the fact that their records don't sound good. And they got a pretty bad attitude. <laughs> <laughs> they got a really bad attitude. Then their records I heard they're don't, pretty hard to work with. <laughs> their records don't really sound good. Like they're, you put them on and you're like, oh god, I wish I could re-record this. Even, even using the technology that they had available. That's, that's at the me. Time. That's me and Husker Du. I don't know how they let that spot guy anywhere near a fader. Well, and that is absolutely true of Husker Du. And I mean, it's true of a lot of those. If you listen to. <laughs> Well, anyway, not to go back. If we could go back in time and re-record those records, the world would be a better place. And that is one thing about that Sex Pistols record, that it sounds, it is solid gold sounding. It sounds like a freaking ABBA record. It's recorded so well. And you you put that side to side with the Bad Brains record, which was, you know, one of those was made by Rick Ocasek. But Bad Brains sound like they're in a men's room. Yeah, it sounds like it was recorded through one headphone speaker. (laughs) But those guys are putting together so much music out of out of like a grab bag of nuts and bolts and the and the overlay of like I mean what I don't like about the clash is that they are a white reggae band. What I love about the bad brains is that they are a fucking reggae band. They are they are doing shit that nobody did, that nobody has done before or since, and it's not like any aspect of it was new, but they put it together in a way that I, it still inspires me. Right. Um, and you know, and I was not able, I was never a Fugazi person. I did not make that transition. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I, I like I liked, I liked Minor Threat a lot, and mm-hmm. there are a couple of Fugazi songs I was familiar with, but I, I thought Minor Threat was really, really good. And I've seen, I never saw them live, but I've seen some of their videos of their live stuff and man they were some working men on stage and the thing is i love those early black flag records love them early early black flag early early black flag records (laughs) everything before they weren't allowed to record anymore (laughs) are you talking about des cadena you're talking like old school pre-henry rollins yeah and i used to go see all i mean i i i had a i had a wonderful time in the punk rock years suicidal tendencies loved it but by the time it turned into bad religion, by the time, you know, by the time Circle Jerks turned into bad religion, I didn't that, think punk that rock was my could... first punk rock show was when Circle Jerks had turned into bad religion. <laughs> I didn't Seriously, think literally, that... literally 1986, my first, it was, I went to a Circle Jerks show. I was totally terrified by the skanking and it was all like, like clove cigarettes and, uh-huh. you know, and things people had seen in magazines. <laughs> 
It's true, I, though. It really is true. You can you can seem like your guys. Like you talk about those guys who walk around with the sink stoppers, acting like they're real tough in their yeah. dirt, in their dirty clothes. But you know that's that's still a reaction to what you've seen other people do. And in three years, they won't dress. In two years, they won't dress like that anymore yeah. because they they are following a certain. No, I'm sounding punk rock. They are following a certain kind of fashion. From 1983 to 1987, if I came out of a concert and I was not covered in blood, <laughs> I. I felt like it was a sh- it was a shitty like show. A one man, Gigi Allen. <laughs> because no, I mean it, it was it wasn't all my blood. I mean it was it was you, you, that, t- you took some bitches out. <laughs> it wasn't that we were all taking each other out. I mean, right. I was, it was it was in, but it was in a spirit of uh, you know people would help the, each other up and stuff. Yeah, get in the middle and 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 you did that. You did beat that. The shit out of you. Oh, uh, <gasps> oh my god, I, I was so scared of that. I was up over by the bar. Oh, oh my no, god! I, I wanted it. I thrived on it. It beat, you know, hit me hard. Hit me harder. You were allowed. It was encouraged. And and then if somebody fell, you did pick them up. And I mean, one of the most traumatic experiences I ever had was at an all show. A guy jumped off the you know stage dove, and it, he just went into a hole. Oh my god! Landed his head. Oh god! And he was he was out cold. <gasps> and you know the band stopped. We all stopped. We helped this. We got this guy into an ambulance. And then the show started up again. Like that is so punk rock. It was great, <laughs> but 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 really that transition, circle jerks into bad religion. I stopped believing that there was a thing called punk rock anymore. I just yeah. didn't. I mean, I didn't. I looked around and I was like, "Well, this is." I don't even know what this is. And really, that was the last moment that it had any relevance because then it was all. Then the next generation was all punk rock through, through, punk rock through punk rock. It was. It was. It was for. I mean, because of course, being twenty-one is like being eighty-seven in punk rock years. <laughs> by, by the time it, by the time we got to nineteen ninety, it was like, really, yeah. we're taking our music from these guys from Aberdeen, Washington. Now, yeah. is that how far out we had to go? I better name to, check the raincoats too to find some monkeys that <laughs> still have a little bit of life in them. Like, right, 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 we're pulling right. these we're pulling these ding dongs out of trees now. <laughs> And they're making and grunge is what that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna call it grunge. Like we talk have, about not not enduring. Oh my we god, we have fallen so far. This is not even. This is just not. This is something else. And and you know, I got into music because I was watching the grunge bands. I came to Seattle and wanted to be in a band. You know, mm-hmm. and I was playing. I was playing jingle jangle, REM Tom Petty rock mm. because to me that's good stuff. That was where it seemed like we were headed. Like that was where the good music was coming from. And I show up in this town and there are all these swamp monsters. Play- you, you order a Jägermeister and get a record contract. <laughs> yeah. And they're playing, you know, really what sounded to me at the time like retro music. And what, what and- a meaning I'm sorry, but what a meaningless genre. Like how can you put mud honey? And the Melvins and Nirvana and Pearl Jam in the same genre. It just does not make a lick of sense. Well, it's just the same as punk rock. If it's good, it's rock and roll. If it's bad, it's grunge. And the and Nabil and I did a did we we DJ'd the Sub Pop twenty year anniversary party. Wow! Uh, several years ago, and we had by the way, collected- he's, he's now he's now the head of a label. <laughs> he's a he's a label head. That's right, a British label head. But he and I were at this this bar, Linda's, and we had two turntables, and we went to all of our friends. And of course, Nabil owned a record store. Right. He had some resources, and I had some stuff. 
and we collected all the like iconic grunge vinyl that we could find and 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 I don't mean like really any of the major label stuff but this was this was all the bands that were really making the scene 89 through 93 mm-hmm. and we sat at Linda's which did not at the time have a very good stereo system which was appropriate thematically aesthetically appropriate <laughs> and we played this vinyl and we would you know one of us would pull a, a record out and the other one would go, oh, my God, yes, cat butt, yes, they're awesome. <laughs> I, never, I never heard of cat butt. Did you oh, make yeah. that up? Oh, no, cat butt was real. <laughs> Hell trout, dude, Helltrout. Get that shit on there. And we would cue up this record, and we'd be like, this is going to blow people's minds that we have. Because the room was full of people that were there. And they're, they're waiting for Green River. Yeah, and Philek is sitting right in front of us, you know. He and I think Philek even came with some records. Like we, everybody was so excited. And then you cue this shit up, and here it comes through the speakers, and within, and everybody goes, "Yeah, woo!" And then within a minute, we're all looking at our fingernails because it sucks. <laughs> like so, like it's terrible. It's badly recorded. It's badly played. It's badly written. Most of that music was just bad. And that's true of every music scene anywhere. But but the, the the good bands, the good grunge bands you have heard of, there's no, there was no secret stash of like, oh yeah, you've never heard of these guys, but they're gonna they're gonna kill you, you know. I mean, there were a couple, there were a couple, but but for the most part, that stuff was just it was like it was like a pair of Converse that were full of vomit. <laughs> Okay. Did you ever read? Have you read any contemporary reviews of early Black Sabbath records? There, they are a riot for for so long. I mean, you know, I'm not saying everything Black Sabbath did was was fantastic, but well, I'm going to say that. I'm going to go right ahead and say it. Well, really? at least hmm. first six years, first just six years. Yeah. Well, there's that one that sounds 69 like, to 75. As there's, well, yeah, and there's that that last Aussie record that sounds like Sloan. But um, but you know wow, the, the early that was quite a statement. Oh yeah, well there's there's a Sloan song that basically <laughs> takes um, what's that? You know the one I mean? It's like a G A C D song. Yeah, 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 you know right. the one I mean? It's uh, oh uh, the one with the gas masks, that one on the cover. But it was the last Aussie record. He was pretty. He was pretty gone at that point. Yeah. But but um, it's funny because like today, well especially like I happen to really like the Melvins, and uh, I think they're Amazing. great. They're incredible. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, cool. 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 But but uh, but you know, I and, and unlike you, I'm given to believe I did not sit around and get super duper high and listen to them. I'm kind of regret that. But like, what's that song? Honey Pot. Like, I guess that's one of their hits. But I mean, like, that song is a triumph. It's so great. But like, you would never have had a Melvins. As Melvins is definitely, I think, one of those bands. Is what you're describing, which is like, it's cool to like the Melvins, but they were really good. And they're, I don't think there ever would have been a Melvins without a Black Sabbath. Not at all. No chance. I mean, that may sound like patently obvious, but it's funny. If you go back to the time, man, nobody, especially, I guess, in criticism, nobody liked Black Sabbath. They were like, this is ridiculous. It's the same way that I make the joke about Mike Anthony, which is, you know, a joke. But, like, they're they're like, this is, this is, what they are playing is asinine. Especially the bass and drum parts, you know, the the bass and drum parts to people who were used to hearing Ginger Baker, like it was, it was was not, yeah, right. Well, picture, I mean, picture Sabbath 
in 71. They were was, they were so weird and so dangerous. Was there a dumber looking I mean they looked like they, if you saw them on the, if you saw Ozzy in a bar you would sit as far away from him as you could. He was the he was the the the, the archetypal dumb white northerner. You know? <laughs> he just looks dumb. <laughs> and the fringe <laughs> He just looks, yeah, and he just, he looks like the type of guy, he looks like the type of guy that's going to throw a pint glass over his shoulder. And like, he's like, this is a guy who's never made a good decision in his whole life. In his whole life. Hair, like, haircuts, tattoos, he has like down the, the he line. Has, he has Ozzy tattooed on his knuckles. <laughs> probably, in, probably as a help him remember. In 69 or whatever. Like, right. He, that was not a thing he did later. That was, that was his first statement to the world. Like, right, I'm Ozzy. See? Says right here. On my fa- on but, my hand. but like even in 1980, I found there is ex- as far as I know, there is exactly one video that I've seen of Crazy Train in what looks like a cable access studio, and I guess he was pretty dried out mostly at this point. He was pretty dried out around Blizzard well, he, of Oz, he, right? He, he met his lady by then. His, la- she- his lady was fixing him up. Yeah. But anyway, and of course, Randy Rhodes is from another planet. But uh, Ozzy, even in 1980, he still looks like he has no idea what to do on stage. No, he walks yeah. around, and he walks around, and he claps. He claps, he looks nervous, and requests repeatedly that everyone go fucking crazy. Yeah, stomps his, stomps his one foot, and then walks over, and then stomps his other foot. But he, then, he looks oh. like an autistic electrician. He holds his hand up, uh, and then he remembers that <laughs> that's the hand that he's holding the microphone in. <laughs> And he's like, oh, right, right, I've got to be singing. I, did, I, did I ever tell you, Ozzy came to West High School. Oh, yeah. Did he tell the story again. This is a, cla- this is a classic. They, they went to the, uh, he went to the other high school, right? To the other high school. Randy Rhodes was in the band. They played. <sighs> I was in my orange Your jumpsuit. orange pants. They were simulcasting from uh, the van the outside. Oh, I'm still so brokenhearted. Uh, and, and, and of course, I've told you. I've told you my 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 REM the DB story. Yeah, that's terrible. Jefferson, at that oh, point, I, Je- Jefferson Fuckstain with Night Ranger opening. That's what I Jefferson chose to go. Jefferson Fuckstain. Now that's an awesome punk rock name. <laughs> <laughs> Sabbath Bloody Sabbath was a good record. And I wish it had been produced differently. Hang on, real quick. I don't have any drumsticks here. But but you know what? A la um, especially Zen Arcade. To an extent, uh, New Day Rising is better. But, like, actually, I, I am not a giant Robert Criscow fan by any yeah. stretch of the amount. Talk about self-involved. But his review of Zen Arcade is, is really funny. He says something like, something along the lines, if it's such a, such a pity to hear Bob Mool's guitar gathering dust between the amp and the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Every time I – Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And what could be a, on the face of it, a stupider song, a stupider bass line. It's yeah. like, what is it like? Like E E B B flat A. It's something like it's something ridiculous like bam 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 bam. <laughs> but it's so good. And then that yeah. breakdown. Sorry to talk about music, but the, the breakdown on that is like, ugh, I yeah. love I, that. Is that's probably my favorite Black Sabbath song. The next record, Sabotage, is where it starts to go off the rails, and then after that, it gets a little. Okay, crazy. now what about Heaven and Hell? You're. Uh, we talked about this. You're a fan. You like Heaven and Hell, right? Uh, Dio, I think Heaven and Hell. I won't say a great dude. You and I almost argued about whether that's the best, best pound for pound Black Sabbath record, which is wow. probably not. I know. See, there's it's on the list here. The things Master we don't of talk Reality about. is the best Black Sabbath record. Is that the one with Sweet Leaf? Yes. 
<laughs> you know the first the first time Eric Corson auditioned for the Long Winters. Right. I've told this story Great right where he player. where he shows up with a five. He showed up with a. I uh, didn't own a bass. Right. And I said, "How did you learn the song?" And he said, "Well, I have an acoustic guitar that has five strings on it." And I said, "Okay, great." They and, make he, those? and he came. No, it was just one was broken. Oh, okay. And he, and he, he showed up, uh, and so I, I, we had a bass there. I handed it to him. It was him. like a bass banjo. And I gave him two. I gave him two songs to learn, and he played them flawlessly. And I was like, "Well, great. Uh, that was pretty cool. Why don't you go home, learn the rest of the record, come back in a week or two, and and we'll rehearse again?" And he was like, "Oh, I mean." Uh, I know that I learned the other songs, and thus and began. Oh, he had already learned. I'm like, wait a minute, you learned the other songs? You've only had the record for two days, and he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's and the so best he, Eric Corson impersonation <laughs> I've ever heard. He proceeds to play the entire out, uh, entire first Long Winter's record flawlessly. What a dick! On, on the bass, and he so he's never played a bass. <laughs> he, he didn't have a bass when he learned it. He learned it on the guitar, and I'm like, okay, kid, that's pretty impressive. Having never played a bass until you were on national TV, you must have appreciated this. I did. And I was like, you know, that's, that's okay. Uh, you know, that, that'll do pig. (laughs) And then we started just uh, like, we're, we're, we're kind of, we don't know what to do next. We played all the songs a couple of times through. And then we start, I just, I, I think I, I just picked out sweet leaf on the guitar and the band kind of picks up the, the jam and, and, um, it was they were simple enough chords that that uh, both Sean Nelson and Chris Cornelia could manage to find something to do on their <laughs> respective keyboards. <laughs> and we and you know and Michael Schilling, our our former drummer, was a big Sabbath fan. So we start rocking out, and Corson is just rocking the bass line of Sweetleaf. Obviously, not that hard. Uh, but, yeah, but, but that's where you really shine. Ringo, Ringo's parts were not always crazy, but you shine on the simple stuff. Yeah, and so he and Schilling form this like Sabbathy backbone, and I'm like, this kid is incredible. I mean, he he looks like somebody's dirty pile of laundry. <laughs> but, like he looks he looks like a free pile at the at the bottom of a dorm. Yeah, but it looks like those haircuts look like they came from the uh, bars lost and found. But he is nailing this, and we get to the end of it, and I'm like, wow, dude, you know, kid, you've got the job. Sabbath fan, you learned all the records, you're, or you learned all, the Long Winter's record, and, you know, and you, you know Sabbath, uh, you, you're, you've got the gig. And he looks at me, and he goes, oh, is that Sabbath? <laughs> and I said, yeah, it was Sweet Leaf. We did the whole song. Like, I sang it. We did the whole song. And he was like, oh, yeah, I just was playing along. Wow. And he just he just intuited it, because really it is intuitive what they're going to do next. But he didn't he was did not know that that's what we were playing. He just played it. I used to, there's a a moment that that I would always enjoy, and I suspect I don't know I, I doubt you enjoyed as much as I did. And I don't know if it was it wasn't just sound checks. It was I get some no it wasn't in the shows. It was during a sound check. But sometimes completely apropos of nothing, as you know. Eric and Nabil would suddenly burst into like a perfect note for note spirit of radio. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they would do it during shows. <laughs> particularly in Europe, sometimes when, when I would dun, 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 dun. <laughs> when I would talk too long and I'd be like, Listen, here's the problem with Denmark. Do you want to know the problem with Denmark? I'm gonna break it down for you. They would launch it. <laughs> they would launch it the spirit of radio. And I'd be like, All right, all right, okay. Now we're rush. We're rush for a minute. <laughs> they would ding you out. They would. 
One, uh, you know, when you're younger, you do, you do silly things. And, uh, when I was about 18, 19, just after, just after high school in, in my uh, gap year, <clears throat> I, uh, I was hanging out with my, uh, my ex-girlfriend and my pal and we'd stayed up all night just being stupid and probably taking Vibrant. And we were all at the same time, <laughs> we're like, Oh my God. Oh, okay, you know what we should do? We should drive to Clearwater Beach for the sunrise. And so we, you can see where this is going. We literally huh. got into his, his, uh, car and drove you know, 45 minutes to Clearwater. And it was just gorgeous watching the sun come up behind our backs because we'd forgotten <laughs> that we were on the West coast of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't Vibran. know. I would Vibran, man, boy, I could put down some Vibran before I discovered ephedrine and took it to the next level. Yeah. You know, I discovered reading that Bob Mool bi- biography. I knew, I knew Mostly secondhand, in some cases firsthand, uh, about you know the stories about them. But I always assumed that they were you know taking like whatever dexedrine. I thought they I thought that they were taking. And I always hear that they they took a lot of speed. Land speed record is called that for a reason. Not a great record, but um, in my opinion. But yeah. but you know I had always heard that especially Bob was taking a lot of speed. Turns out. Turns out, trucker speed. He was popping ephedrine just like me. Boom, punk rock. Wow, look at that. You are punk rock. Oh my god. I knew that all along. But now I've got a doctor. I took it into another level. Yeah, uh, your doctor feel good. Hey John, hey John, let's, let's stay up late and watch Mr. Show. <laughs> feel good. Make all right. Feel good. When I first talk about a shitty band. That thing that that thing Scott Simpson set around to that guy playing a one hundred guitar riffs all in a row. He didn't like that. I, I loved it, but he got to the eighties and he threw in like four uh four uh Motley Crue tunes. In a row. Well not or a couple of them he were played, in a row. He played then, at least a couple in a row. And then he came back to them later and it was like, dude. Your that, that's, 80s and that's my what 80s? you that's what you chose to highlight. You chose to do like four bars of a cream song and then you did like three or four Motley Crue songs. Yeah. Like if that was if that was your 80s then I'm sorry. And Motley Crue is like the Burger King of metal. I, I should do this for a living. I really should. You should. You should have you should have a podcast where somebody just names an album mm-hmm. and then just or, or, or a band. Look, look, could we just try a couple? Go ahead. Just shoot me one. I'll see what I can do. Um, the Guess Who. Um, you know what? <laughs> oh, wow. Stumped yeah. you. Guess Who. That was uh, <laughs> Baby, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet? Uh, well, no, that was... So, yeah, it was Bachman from Bachman Turner Overdrive. They stopped overdriving. Yeah. And he R- left... Randy, Randy Bachman? <laughs> yeah, he left, the, he left the Guess Who because he said... They just wanted to party and they didn't want to work. Hmm. I was listening to American Woman the other day, which is a tune that is that has entered into the land of cliche. Oh, so it's, it's like throwing the devil horns. It's really, it's yes, absolutely. But I was listening to it on a on one. You know, sometimes you, you you're listening to a tune on an unfamiliar stereo, and you hear the mix differently. And I heard two things really profoundly. One. For most of the track, the band is really not in sync at all. It's a it's the it's that era of like good enough. It's pretty floppy. Like nobody's really tight with each other. But those those drum breaks, 
You hear the room in those in the emptiness because the rest of the man shuts the fuck up for a minute. Yeah, and you hear you hear like the squeak of his of his kick pedal or whatever, and uh, and uh, and I was suddenly drawn back into the tune because it was no longer a uh, it was no longer like a, a cliche that that made it unlistenable. I was hearing the I was hearing the early 70s late 60s recording technology i was hearing these guys write this classic tune in there and you know bring it into the studio like let's do this one and it was fun again like it was it was fun to hear it it was like listening to those beatles mixes where you're like oh my god right you can hear the carpet rustle it was uh it was a I mean, if you can find something new and interesting to hear in American Woman, I will put in with you. But it was there. What about Steppenwolf? I went through a heavy Steppenwolf phase in in the right about that time when I was trying to figure out maybe Jethro Tull was my band. I, and there was that. Uh, what'd you decide? <laughs> I decided no. I for one day I was driving around super baked in my car with my friend Peter Nosek. And we were listening to Jethro Tull because Peter had this really uh, like uh, unusual music taste. His favorite band was the Talking Heads, but he also loved the Doors. And he would show up sometimes and like Jethro Tull, what do you think about this? And put it, you know, put the tape in. And we'd drive around, uh, and I was uh, baked, and I was like <laughs> Jethro Tull. Yes, why have I not given these guys their due? Jethro Tull is my new band. And it listen, for, listen, 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 to, listen, 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 to, listen, to, listen to the flute. <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, it lasted about a day. And then the next day I heard them and I was like, oh, fuck. I was just baked. But I went through a Steppenwolf phase at that same time and actually saw Steppenwolf. I believe you saw, their, saw John Kay and Steppenwolf. <laughs> John Kay and Steppenwolf, right. I saw them on their first reunion tour. This would have been 86, probably. Uh, they played a they played a bar in Anchorage called the Grand Central Station, and we all went, and it was cool and amazing. And when you think about it, John Kay was probably thirty nine, or something. You know, like nineteen eighty six. It wasn't that far off. He probably was thirty five. <laughs> we were like, oh, this guy's really old. He's coming out of retirement. And uh, and we listened to Steppenwolf all that summer, and it was great drinking party music, like psychedelic party music. So I was pro Steppenwolf, and and that stuff actually, uh, if 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 you listen to deep deep Steppenwolf, Steppenwolf cuts, <laughs> Steppenwolf. I, I don't. I didn't know Steppenwolf had deep cuts. They do you, have deep cuts. Really, and they're great. really. If you sit down there, and you drive into the valley into the deep AOR cuts. Yeah, it's not like listening to the to the flip side of Inagata Devita, where they have three or four songs, and you're like, okay. <laughs> It's like listening to, and you know, I have like four copies of Inagata Devita on vinyl. I don't know how, I don't, I mean, I know how I have one, but I don't know how I have four. <laughs> Just because you occasionally throw it at the wall? <laughs> I think it's because some, at one point I wanted to have four turntables <laughs> and all four copies going at once. <laughs> Just four copies of Inagata Devita all started like 30 seconds apart. <laughs> That sounds like a Flaming Lips experiment. Right? We should do that. We should do that in a parking garage in San Francisco. (sighs) I gotta go pick up my kid. I got nothing. 
God damn it. I love music. I know you do. We should do a music podcast. I mean, we, we, we filter it in like Hitler through Roderick on the line, but you could do a music podcast that blew people's minds as long as, you know, it wasn't about guess who. Mm-hmm. If I had named any band from 1976 on, you could have gone off like a rocket. Yeah, I mean, I I really... Or like, any band 68 or early. I like, you know what? I, I also like the idea... Oh, I, I don't love that word, meme, but you should always say like that. But um, I've always liked the idea of trying to generate like a, what? It's like there was that fake Wikipedia page for five years about this fake war. Like I, uh, <clears throat> did you hear about that? The Wikipedia page has stayed up for five years about a fake war. No. Yeah, yeah. It made it past the editors for five years, but... I always like the idea of trying to generate like a new catchphrase that, that literally meant nothing. My, uh-huh. my yeah, my um, my friend Marla in college was was trying to get us all to start uh, using <clears throat> pail <clears throat> as in something that you would carry water in, and and the the, the way you use it, you say, "Oh man, that that is so pale. It's so pale that it's bucket." And then I started really liking it and actually use it. Man, that's that's a hundred percent bucket. And I think we should do that with the guess who. I think we should get people to 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 really feel like now. Now is that did Todd Rundgren produced them, right? The guess who? I think so. Oh, I bet I I bet you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. He's got crazy hair nowadays. Rundgren. Did you hear? You know, XTC came around on Skylocking. They, you know, they were pissed as hell. They felt they feel like they got Phil Spectered by him. They got Let It Bead, where like they had Skylarking and it's a bunch of really good songs. And then he did all that business. He like was like, okay, give me those tracks. And uh, he went and did all that business with kind of <clears throat> putting it all together into like a song cycle. And uh, oh, Andrew Partridge was pissed when that record came out. I loved it. And apparently now they've come around. They they really? they Black Sabbath their way into liking it now. Which I think is, you know, good on Andy Partridge. Good on Andy Partridge. I'm super glad to hear it because <clears throat> I think that's a great record. It's a fantastic record. Yeah. I like Oranges and Lemons too. <clears throat> I like I like them. I like them. He had, he had panic attacks on stage, you know. He had the stage fright. I didn't I ever tell you about the time I, I, I saw him in a train station? No. Um I, I rescind I w- my ding. I want to hear this. Um I was in the train station. I paint your picture. 1976. <laughs> I, I was in a train I've been, station. I've been in... sniffing blue. I've been sniffing glue and eating automobile tires for three days. <laughs> I was not in a good place. I. It was the Reading Festival, and I was in Bath, England, which is down the train line from Reading. <laughs> You're just pulling out silly. I was in, I was in pock, pockmark on meat pie. <laughs> uh, and I had gone there because my, my mother's maiden name is Pretty. And there's a town in the Mendip Hills of England <laughs> called Pretty. And I hitchhiked there to see this little town, which is really just like, it's just a maypole and a bar and a church and a cemetery. And, and, and like 10,000 sheep. <laughs> Okay. So I went to Pretty, and uh, and it, I, you know, I had a beer in the bar, and I slept. Uh, I slept overnight in some guy's Volkswagen in a in a car park, 
And then the next day I was like, I'm not hitchhiking back out of this place. There's no one here. It took me all day to hitchhike down there. So what did I do? No, no, no. I got a, I got a guy, a guy in a mini drove me back to Bath and I was going to take the train to London. But it was the Reading Festival and I didn't know about it at the time. And I'm at the Bath train station and I'm just there with a bunch of salary men like like uh <laughs> English guys with with uh bumbrellas and um and and bowler hats waiting for the train. And I look down the train platform and there's Andy Partridge. And it's just me, a bunch of bumber shoots, and then Andy Partridge. And Andy Partridge, is his eyes are darting around the train platform. He is fidgeting and nervous and looking everywhere to see if anybody recognizes him. Oh. And I'm behind like these guys in, a, in suits, and I'm way down the platform, and I'm watching him. And he's looking around. He's looking to the left. He's looking to the right. He's like, like he's like he's something. That's something he doesn't want. Something he definitely doesn't want. He's like, he's like, please nobody recognize me. Please nobody recognize me. And he's looking, but he can't stop looking around. Like if he just if he just sat on a sat down on a bench and, and opened a newspaper, he would have been fine. He looks like a nearsighted butt. I mean, he's very easy to pick out of a crowd. Yeah, he was he was extremely conspicuous, but nobody was recognizing him because it was just a bunch of normals. And he's looking around, looking around, and I'm, lo- I'm watching him. And then he looks over and he sees me looking at him. <laughs> and he snaps front like, like now he's staring across the opposite train platform, pretending that he didn't just see me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at him now. And he is like, and then he looks over and I'm still looking at him and he turns and runs. <laughs> I can't believe Andy Partridge has ever run. Well, I mean, like, hustles off the train platform and out of the station. Like, the idea to him at the time, 1986, the idea of him, or I guess this was 80, this would have been later, this was 88. The idea of sharing a train with somebody who had, because I would have been in a different car. I mean, I was all the way down. He just bailed. That was it. He just bailed. He and I think it it looked to me at the time like he was experimenting with maybe I'll take the train. And he got that far and was like nope, can't do it. And I don't know what I mean he must have gone and hailed a taxi or something. You think that's agoraphobia? Uh, yeah, I think he's he's afraid of rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do big. <pick. laughs> 